This is the balanced dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma, managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? Today's guest is Dr. Risa Riger, and Dr. Riger is a PhD clinical psychologist, international speaker, researcher, and consultant, and she's our first guest making a repeat performance. Listeners can hear more about Risa on our episode 35, which is available on major podcast sites and our website, thebalancedilemma.com. And before we begin, I want to note that we are not doctors and we're not giving medical advice. You must consult your own providers. And we're touching on some tough topics today, so we don't recommend this episode for children or anyone who may be triggered by topics like self-harm and suicide. So with that said, welcome back to The Balanced Dilemma, Risa. I am beyond honored. I didn't know until this moment that I'm the first guest for round two. This is like hosting Saturday Night Live for the second time. <laughs> now you just need to be prepared to sing and tell great jokes. I'll do what I can. Good. When you joined us last, we had focused on some of the mental health challenges brought on and worsened by the pandemic. But today we want to focus on the current state of teens and children in mental health and even the effect on families. You'd have to live in a cave not to be aware that there are many headlines claiming that our children are in mental health crisis. And I'm just going to read a few. Recently, Newsweek's cover said, uh, had a, a title, I Feel Invisible. The Wall Street Journal just today, parents are giving children melatonin to help them sleep and doctors have concerns. Washington Post, Meta knew its apps harm teens, mental health, families allege in suits. New York Post, how social media is literally making teens mentally ill. And I'm just going to add, there was a recent CNN Kaiser Family Foundation study of 2,000 adults, 500 of whom were parents. Eight out of 10 parents were concerned with depression, anxiety, alcohol, and drug use in their children. And three quarters of them we're worried about self-harm and pandemic-related loneliness and isolation. I mean, those are strong stats. So, uh, Risa, Dr. Riger, uh, tell us, is this reality or is this hype? This isn't hype, and there, the trend was there before the pandemic. So let's be very clear about that. It's not like things just happened with the pandemic, but they certainly have worsened since the beginning of the pandemic. And Would you have said we were in a mental health crisis, let's say, in February of 2020? I'm trying to think back. Uh, February 2020, in many respects, yes. But when we had such a, a serious and dramatic shift in the way we lived, it just became more obvious and we saw things worsen. You know, we saw the experiences of our children and of ourselves really become much more difficult, much more stressful and challenging. So let me ask you, what ages does childhood cover? When we are talking about a teen crisis, what age uh, should we be thinking that would pertain to? Well, I think the crisis, we'd be really being not exactly accurate if we didn't bring our younger children into this mix as well. And certainly 
younger children are not going to show difficulties the way that teenagers do. And they also may not have the language to say, Mom, I'm feeling depressed or anxious. Definitely, uh, definitely not. However, that everyone has been affected. And if we just think about it, you know, we're built to be social. Human beings are social beings. Our brains are social organs. And we look for that connectedness. I mean, we start with at birth, looking for attachment and the importance of attachment, what that means for us, how that helps us learn how to regulate and keep ourselves steady so that we're able to take information in from outside of the world. So things move on in life, we get to pandemic. And so what we're taught about being developing relationships, being in relationships, everything is put on hold. And what was a wonderful thing, which is being close to human beings, became the danger and could be a mortal danger. What percentage of your practice involved children? That's that's kind of a hard question because what happens is that whenever I work with children, I always work with the parents. So it's never And like, I imagine so often when you're talking to parents, the issues involve their children. <laughs> Absolutely. So it, it doesn't it doesn't fall neatly in, into buckets. Now, the other uh, situation that's come up, some of this data indicates that there's a distinction in gender, that girls have been more affected than boys with some of these mental health challenges that have come up in recent years. How do you feel about that? Well, the, the you know, the numbers, the numbers support that. And is there a reason the re- for that? You know, I don't think the whole thing is completely understood yet, but there is more vulnerability for girls in this in this area. In, with teens, you mean? With teens, and yes, and perhaps also with younger children, we need to really look in the stats on that as well. So I think this brings us to what we're here to discuss, what, what is causing this uh, crisis. One of the things that's gotten a lot of headlines is a connection between technology or more specifically social media. Um, there have been allegations that the uptick in mental health problems for children coincided with the introduction of the smartphone in 2009-2010. How do you feel about that? Well, the introduction of a smartphone is one thing. How the smartphone is used is something else. Yes, and so there has been information that the uh, apps, as we'll call them, or social media outlets actually target things that make us uh, addicted or that will cause us to double down and read further. Uh, I mean, this is a, a psychological targeting. I mean, do you think that that is dangerous for our children or is it something we shouldn't be so concerned about? I don't think I don't think that there's a one or another way of looking at it. I mean, there have been, you know, thankfully we did have our, our apps and our our internet ways of being able to connect during the pandemic, which was a very important thing and really kept us in touch. That gave us the social interaction that humans need, in other words. Yes, best we could, best we could at the moment. So we can't be so fast to demonize. However, kids who are on a screen, on a small screen, scrolling, just getting involved in one thing or another on their on their uh, screens instead of being involved in real human interactions, which is a possibility now, is problematic, period. What if we take it back a little further than the smartphone to video games? Did they pose or do they pose the same problem as 
the um, so, as the social media. You know, again, there are ways that, you know, some kids during their game time, they were interacting with other kids. Of course, you have to be very careful to make sure that the kids that they're interacting with really are kids. And so that with anything, you know, you have to really think about what does moderation look like? What is a tipping point? How do you enforce that? And what else do you have to offer for your children? It's interesting, um, during the pandemic, when all of the children were switching to remote learning, I had read that boys were faring better because the way that they engaged in social media was through gaming, but there's interaction and socialization versus girls who might be scrolling through images that could be toxic. I found that an interesting distinction. Not only was that an interesting distinction for girls, but think about just as adults. So if we want to talk about vulnerability for just a moment in this regard, adults who are looking on Instagram or whatever else, and you're barely getting it together to keep everybody together, keep yourself dressed, make sure there's food, et cetera, et cetera. And you see pictures of, of people who are creating art projects together as a family. And so we're, you know, how do we use this? And, and it gives us a way of understanding better how this level of self-referencing becomes the path of suffering. Can you explain that a little more self-referencing? In other words, hey, you know, here I am. She, did I take a shower today? Was it yesterday or the day before? And there's a family that seems to be happy sitting together, working on creating the New York skyline out of recycled materials. And you look at that and you go, wow, that's not, that's not me. Or a, a woman who is learning now her third language during the, you know, during So it makes the you pandemic. feel bad. You well, when you look at that and you say, oh my gosh, look at that. And you reference yourself according to that model. That can be a hard place. I could imagine that. On the flip side, aren't there a lot of people who looked at those things and said, oh, come on, give me a break? <laughs> or people were putting up, you know, pictures of them running outside. You know, actually today, a friend posted on Facebook, I was so distracted, I showed up in my doctor's office without realizing I'm wearing my slippers. Is that is there something wrong with that? I often wear my slippers. We're going to take a break. <laughs> Are you in right now? No. <laughs> We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Balanced Dilemma. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Dr. Risa Riger, and we'll just give you a warning that we are not doctors. Well, she is, but we are not, <laughs> Christy and I. And this isn't medical advice, so you must consult your own provider. But also that this program is not for children or anyone who might be triggered by discussion of self-harm or suicide. And I want to point out that there is a suicide and crisis hotline uh, that is national, and you dial 988 if you are in crisis. So before we took our break, we were talking about we all have to deal with technology in our lives on a daily basis, and there have been some some changes in how we socialize and interact. And uh, this has we they're attributing some of this to this occurrence with children with an increase in mental health uh, issues. But one point that's been made is that we no longer know how to be bored or to have downtime. We're used to immediate uh, response and entertainment. Is this a reality that's affecting our ability to cope? It's really important that we find the space and make it clear 
that intellectual curiosity is really important. Intellectual curiosity is what gets us through our entire lives. From the time that we're born and we're looking around and trying to figure and make figure out make sense of the world in the world until way, you know, way long in our lives. And so when we give something that's passive and we don't have an opportunity to have this uptick of interest and follow that it puts us in a much more passive learning situation and we miss out and we don't take that passivity and really take it into the active of our lives. That's one of the things that was found. And it's affecting brain activity. They've actually done MRIs to show that we're firing on different cylinders. Another thing I noticed that there were phrases used like together uh, but alone or alone together where they have groups of people scrolling on their phone and not engaging. And I thought of, uh, there's been a mention of eye contact. When you are socializing with another person, you have to look them in the eye. And I remember with one of my children who had some developmental issues we were working on, you had to stroke the face and encourage them to look you in the eye. Are we losing some of these skills that are core building blocks in socialization? We need to introduce that. We need to make that important. And as a matter of fact, the first place where that starts is right in your own home. And so that when you're telling your child something, when you're trying to help your child deal with some uh, feelings that are big feelings or uncomfortable feelings, and we're certainly going to talk about feelings because that's really crucial. We're talking about uh, difficulties in, in our lives, and that comes on a feelings level. Nobody, nobody falls off the edge because they can't spell the word there. Um, it's really an emotional, it's an emotional space. And so as a parent, you need to be really, really careful, not just about the words that you say to your children, but you need to be super careful about being clear in yourself what you're feeling, being clear in yourself what's going on inside of you, and being able to recognize the depth and level and scope of feelings that you're experiencing so that when you talk to your children and they are the masters of looking at your face and reading your face. You want to know if your kids could read the answer is absolutely yes, because the first thing they learn how to read is your face. So you are saying that encouraging this one-on-one -on -one interaction is a necessary uh, interaction with all of us, and it starts in the home? It's, it, starts, it starts in the home. And that when you're talking to kids, you know, kids know when there's something wrong. They'll look at you, and I'm sure, you know, we're moms here. You, you know, we come in, we think, you know, okay, I'm, I'm mom, you know, this is mom time now. And, you know, if there's one eyebrow up, if there's like one little piece, they're, they're looking at us, and they're wondering, and they may ask, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they're, they're picking up something. Even if they're not asking, they're picking something up. And the body knows before the brain. So this is interesting. This brings us to some of these articles that we have read have attributed uh, some of this uh, development in how children are socializing to modern parenting and helicopter parenting. Or and snowplow parenting. Snowplow parenting. I hadn't heard that one. And basically overscheduling, not giving the children the time for self um uh, figure self-guided resolution of issues, figuring things out. I is this a reality? Or natural consequences. That's which correct. Is the world's natural consequences. Okay, so there are the ABCs, 
right? And let's think about the ABCs differently. A is attention, B is balance, meaning self-regulation, and C is compassion. I want to also emphasize that apostrophe S, and the S, I believe, needs to be about self that children need to learn about themselves. And that's a crucial part of what it means to be a parent and also what happens in the schools. But I wanna stick with parents right now before we move on to anything else because that's something you really can control, have impact on and make changes with. So, so how do you, I'm sorry, Christine. No, no, how, no. how do you teach or impart the, those ABCs? First of all, you have to have it in yourself. It's gotta start with you. So what's your attention like? How regulated are you with your own feelings? When are you showing compassion? And what do you understand about yourself? And in order to be able to do that, you need to know what you're feeling. You know, I, I think I shared this with you. I have a uh, friend in Ireland, another country, and uh, she had a child who was having mental health issues. And I was surprised, A, that they were suffering the same things that we were suffering with here. But B, the um, prescription they were given was to do a family garden. And the therapist said, you have to walk there as a family or drive there, do the garden. And since they need the children would need a lift back, they would be stuck at the garden for the requisite period of time. And I, I thought that was interesting. But this mother also told me that in their curriculum, let's say in middle school, they would require the kids to take the bus and figure out how to get somewhere as part of their learning. And so much now we are driving our kids where they need to go. Um, it's scary to ride a bike. These are things that are missing that are actually developmentally essential to their growth, if I'm reading this correctly. These experiences are really essential because, you know, we have this idea that learning needs to be this, you know, get it down, get your data down. And we're missing out on helping our children try to make sense of and figure out and learn to think that you need to learn to think. I, we're, gonna, we're almost out of time in this segment, and I wanted to pivot into schooling where the schools fit in in those roles. but. We just need to keep it short for right now. Well, schools also, you know, schools are sometimes, uh, they want to take on programs, they need to be able to take on programs, and there needs to be the time, and it needs to become a priority as part of a school curriculum. So you do, you know, so many of the schools are putting in meditation times and time, you know, for, for reflection and thinking about the world. Do you support those ideas? I think it's very important. How do we come together and make connection? Connection is everything. Relationship is everything. Well, we're going to actually take a break. We will be right back, and we're going to continue the discussion about schools and their roles and what is going on in schools, particularly during the pandemic. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Dr. Risa Riger about mental health issues, and this is not for children. And if you are sensitive to these topics, it may not be for you either. We're going to remind you that there is a 988 hotline for suicide and crisis if you are in that position. And also Westchester County has a mental health diversion line in its 911 emergency system for, for mental health issues. Before we go back to schooling, let's, maybe it is related to schooling, let's go back to toddlers and telephones. I mean, how often are we in restaurants? And 
parent hands the kid, the, tod the toddler, the phone to keep them engaged. And we all understand it and we all did it. But you have some thoughts on this, don't you? We have to be very intentional about how we introduce things to our children and really be clear about what we're getting immediately and what we're setting down as pathways in our kids' brains about what they anticipate. So that, think about it this way. Your parent, you know, as a parent, you need your moments, you need to have peace, you need your kid occupied. So what's the easiest thing to do? Give them the phone, give them a screen. Now, that's gonna backfire. Because from a child's perspective, you're giving them something. You are goodness. You are the person who's teaching them about the world. So you're teaching them that this is what they should do. Or they right? complain and get what they want. <laughs> well, right. Or, you know, that this is what, this is what, you know, they should, they should get this. Like they have, you know, that you're giving it to them and therefore it's the right thing to do. So if you're giving it to them and you're telling them inadvertently, like this is a good thing, then when they're asking you for it and then you're telling them no, it's a very, it's a very mixed message. So you're doing it for you at your convenience and you're really giving your children a very confusing message so as a parent you know the easiest thing to do is hand them the phone but what you're getting in the short term you are paying back quadruple over in the long term but as a parent if you're in a restaurant and or a play or a movie you have other people there that you need to be respectful of mm -hmm. give your kid a book give your give your kid a book give your kid a crayon give your kid something else but don't you know, don't necessarily just go to the screen. The screen is the most passive, the most passive and the easiest. Even if they're doing educational games, which even is what if, a lot of... Yeah, even even if, I'm, and you know, and with a two-year-old, they need to be in the world. There's a difference between screen time and being in the world three-dimensionally. Well, here's a tidbit that comes from like entertainment television. I, there was some starlet, I forget which one, and another starlet had told her some advice on ch child uh, rearing that she said was the best she ever heard. She said, do not give them the iPad unless they're on a plane. So maybe there is some type of compromise that we're not re re defaulting to the screen in all situations, but as Maura pointed out, if it's something where it could irritate everyone around you and it's a special circumstance, that's when, when you use it. And there's also this organization by tech parents, I think, mm -hmm. right, called Wait Until Eighth, mm -hmm. where they're suggesting kids not even have phones until eighth grade. What do you think about that? Because, you know, by that point, your kid is not tethered to you the same way. And parents use it as a way to track their child, to know what they're doing. Uh, even, you know, be able to touch base after school if they're, if they're at work. Well, I, I just want to add to this because I, having had several children, I did try to do that with our last one. I didn't make it all the way till eighth. But they don't even allow you to have options the way they control technology. A flip phone had a very different impact with kids than the smartphone, which is much more immediate and tactile and the screen has all sorts of, you know, uh, color issues that draw you in. But... You kind of wonder, these tech parents in Silicon Valley having this little secret knowing that they don't want to give their kids the, the phone, what is there that we don't know? Obviously, the Facebook papers have released information, but that they created this Wait Till 8th, which has a website that you can read. Are they in on information that we didn't know? We can have the same information. 
we can, we can have the same information. As a parent, you make your decisions and you have to stand by your decisions. So if you want to wait until eighth grade, until 10th grade, until whatever grade, know that you're going to get pushback. Well, it's sort of like, at least when I was younger, there were the parents who in their home would let you see the R-rated movies, and if your parent was still stuck on the PG movies, you'd be going to that other kid's house so you could see them because the parents weren't coordinating. Or the parents w- that didn't have TV. I mean, there were those purists. Uh, it, Absolutely. Right. Whatever you decide for your family, you need to stick by it. Understand that, you you know, when your child is saying, I want, I want, I want, and you're saying no, that there's a there's a mini rupture that happens because you're not saying yes. But you need to be learn in yourself how to be able to tolerate your child being uncomfortable, unhappy, angry with you and all the ways in which you're affecting them adversely by not giving them what they want at the moment. It's a really good point. So the problem with trying to limit social media is that as a life skill, as they get older, they actually need it. Even for business, one needs social media apps. And in school, so many things require you to go to Facebook or even create LinkedIn pages. How do we reconcile that? The reconciliation is, I think, very much the name of your show which is the balance dilemma. Technology is part of our world. And the question that we're posed with at the moment is how do we how do we balance this? How do we integrate this? And how do we let our children know that interactions with people is really important. That's where our oxytocin comes from, our uptick, that one of the one of the ways of helping you feel good at the moment is to do something for someone. So being with people, kids are mostly with people at school. And the pandemic shut that down. How in and how many ways did that affect them from young and young kids as well as the older ones? depends on the kid. So first of all, there are some children who have anxiety in school and they may have some social anxiety and for them it was a dream come true because then they were able to avoid anxiety. And that doesn't mean that it was helpful to them. It just means that they avoided what was uncomfortable. As they would avoid situations where someone in the class was creating a scene or a fuss and being disruptive you didn't have that the same way you did you didn't you didn't have that but for the being online and missing interaction children one of the reasons that children go to school is because they are going to be with their friends they need to go to school and there's so much to be learned about being involved in group activities what give and take is like what does it mean to delay your gratification uh, because they've done you know the kids have played your game and now it's time for another game to take over so there's so much of this learning that happens not just about um, you know education but in terms of how you learn about yourself, how you, when you say something, and let's say you say something that 
you know, kids will look at you and say, like, how could you say that? Like, these are these are important pieces of feedback for children to take in and learn from their environment to understand themselves better. This same uh, dialogue or conversation is taking place with regard to the work from home movement. And I was listening to Freakonomics, and they mentioned that when you go to work, you have to socialize with people that you might never meet naturally. They wouldn't be part of your family. Maybe they wouldn't even be part of your friend group, but you would have to get along with them in the workplace environment. And you lose that when you uh, take away the office setting. And I thought of that as being applicable with schools, which you just mentioned, that that's part of learning what you can and can't do, uh, accepting people who are different or uh, different learning styles, all of that. So what is your vote on virtual versus uh, in person? It's not a vote. I can't I can't answer it in terms of a vote. Has there been a time when it's been really important and our only option? Yes. Does it give us options? Yes. Is it, you know, and are there times that that may be necessary? Yes. The question always is, to what extent, what are you missing, and where else do you get it? So if you're in a situation where it's not an option, what can we do at home to compensate for that lack of socialization? Get your child involved in other activities. Get your child involved in team sports. Get them out there. Um, go do something. Take on a, a charitable or you know a charitable pursuit as a family. Do something for someone else. Do something for someone else. And on that, we're going to take a break. This is the Balanced Dilemma. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma, and we're speaking with Dr. Risa Riger. And Maura, I wanted to tell our listeners where they can find us um, on social media. They can go to wherever they listen to their podcasts on Apple, uh, Spotify, and Google. They can also find us on the internet at thebalancedilemma.com, where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. They can also rate us and share us. That's the best way that we can grow our audience. And you can also email us at uh, thebalancedilemma at gmail.com. Actually, it's balancedilemma at gmail.com. So glad I have you. <laughs> <laughs> and just a reminder, Christy and I are not doctors, so we're not giving medical advice. Please contact your own providers. And for anyone who may be triggered by discussions of suicide or young children, this probably isn't the episode for you. And again, a reminder, there is a national suicide and crisis line. That's 988. So, Maura, I wanted to go back to this article that was in the Post by a Nicholas Carderas, how social media is literally making teens mentally ill from September 17th of this year, 2022. And he gave steps that uh, he felt could confront some of the things we've been discussing. Number one, build grit and resilience, which there's the book by Angela Duckworth of that name, Grit. Two, find a purpose that resonates with you. Three, maintain a physical uh, mind-body practice. Four, he said, read classical philosophy, which I thought was interesting. Five, uh, help others. Um, altruism, concentrating on someone other than yourself. Six, be creative. So I think these are really good points that 
jump off of what uh, Dr. Riger has already mentioned to us today. How do you feel about the, those points? Well, listen, getting out and exercising, be around other people, finding purpose, spending time with yourself. I mean, that's that's not arguable. Um, the other, I think, the other pieces to, to you know to add for that is that make sure you get enough sleep. You need to sleep. Sleep is like putting your brain through the rinse cycle. But a lot of people who are depressed sleep, oversleep. That's different. That's that's oversleeping. But I'm talking about really getting sleep to be able to restore yourself and eat properly. You know, you need to nourish yourself in order to be able to function. Um, you know, we've all had a kid who, when, they, when they're when they not eating something, you know, there's nothing left in the tank, so you're not going to get the best of who they are. Well, I love that acronym, HALT, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired, and it yes, does answer a lot of issues. Yes. <laughs> we have to turn to suicide and drug overdoses, and CNN and the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study recently and found that uh, while there was a record high in 2021 in suicides, after two years prior of, de of a decline, and drug overdoses reached record levels in 2021. And I have to say that there's not almost a day, but certainly on a week that goes by that I don't see uh, at notice about some young person ages 18 to 30 or 35 who is gone way too soon, and it's suicide or, or drug overdose. So I don't think that this is an overstatement, but is that what you're seeing, and what do we do? Well, first of all, suicide affects everyone. And we, and this may sound very, uh, this may sound quite startling to people, but you know, we talk to our children about, we have the talk. And the talk takes many forms. We take we have the talk about sex. We have the talk about drinking and driving. Like if you're if you're been drinking, don't go into a car. We do not have the talk with our with our children, with our teens about suicide. And it's an important talk to have. First of all, let me just back up because what people are afraid of, parents are so afraid, and I understand that. Like if you bring it up, then it makes it a possibility. If you bring it up, it'll happen. And so it's like if I bring up, that used to be thought if I talk about sex with my kid, that that'll mean that I'm giving it the stamp of approval and I'm putting something in their heads that isn't there. What you're doing is that you're articulating that if it's there, you're there to hear it. You're there to hear it without judgment, that you will come if your kid is at a party and there's drugs going on there and they don't feel comfortable, there's no judgment. Get on the phone and call me, I will be there. Don't get in the car and drive with someone who's drunk or if you've been drinking, don't go in the car and drive. Call me, I will be there, non-judgmental, no questions asked. I will be there for you. And so also having some kind of talk, and I'm not giving you a script here of, you know, hopefully this may not come up, but if it does come up where, you know, there are things that happen in people's lives and sometimes you can feel really down and things can feel bleak. And you need to promise me that if that ever happens, that you will not act on it. You know, you will not act on that. Call me. I'm available. Call this number. Do something. Do not act on it. In whatever language that you want to use for this. Are there signs that parents should look for? 
They're absolutely they're absolutely what, what is it? First of all, if your child doesn't seem like themselves anymore, right? If they don't seem like themselves, if they're telling you that they're feeling sad or if they're looking down and they're telling you about something that you don't think really warrants that level of feelings, you know, or that, oh, it'll just pass. It's okay. Because we it's very hard to um, it's very hard to hear our children having a hard time. But if you're open to it, you need to let your child know that you can listen to what's painful to them without having to um, negate it or minimize it, but that you can sit and listen because it's an important and powerful message when you can talk about something. Talking about something means that there's possibility. There's possibility of solution. There's possibility of things getting better. When you message that it's unspeakable, then you're shutting it off. So, there are many different types of professionals that you can deal with. You can have a social worker, you can have a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Um, and is there an age at which you think it's too young to have a child talking to someone? Or is there a level of severity that a parent could look for before consulting with a professional? Is there a type of professional you might say, well, this might be better than that at this point? Please explain. <laughs> I've worked with children who are as young as two and a half. So life can life can have, you know, boulders in the road at different points in time. And so if you're bolder with your little child, you know, your little your young child has to do with toileting, for example, and kids who are withholding. And if you've had a kid who withholds, you know that this is a really uh, difficult spot to be in. And you never know when someone's going to hit a glitch or something that they can't seem to get past and that you as a parent, you're trying your absolute best and you can't seem to get there. Get help. A panel of medical experts, a task force, recommended that all primary care doctors screen children from ages 8 to 18 for anxiety. What do you think of that, and should they be doing it when the kids are younger? There would be different language to be used, and you have to see what happens. If, you're, if you have a child, and I work also with children who have select mutism, who are unable to speak in many, many situations and oftentimes outside of the home. So entirely. And so at different ages, at different developmental levels, you can ask the child, and it doesn't hurt to find out how is your child socializing? Are they able to communicate? And having this type of screening is really important. You know, our, our health is a big, is, is big. So mental health is an important part of health. And we can't leave that behind. So one of the problems, despite everyone's discussions about mental health and its importance, is paying for it. It's very expensive. Few providers take insurance. And those that do, insurance barely covers it. Is there a change coming in this? I, I Have you seen it? I, I really don't have an answer for you. There are, there are different services and clinics that have sliding scales. How there are teaching know? hospitals that have sliding scales. And so find out what's in your neighborhood where, you know, depending on where you're living, there are, there are resources you may need to wait, which is very unfortunate, but there are resources available and try your best to go and find them. But Maura has raised a really good point, yes. and we know from actual experience that to the average person, 
I mean, also that assumes they have insurance. But even when you do have insurance, there are terrible waits. I had read that it could be up to 12 weeks backlog to get uh, your own professional to work with. And uh, Maura sent me an interesting thing. CVS is offering uh, virtual uh, mental health sessions with providers. I wonder if everything we're talking about will lead to change, more uh, boots on the ground to help people, that, and also a way to help them pay for it. Many of them are out of network. And it's another stressor for parents. Correct. And from what you've been saying, our parents have to be relatively stable in order to provide the stability that the children need. And we've all been knocked off our feet. Yes. And so we get back to the oxygen mask. You need to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your children. And so um, I'm always dropping new information. And so I don't want to give anybody homework, but if you're listening, you can contact, you can see what I'm information I'm dropping on Instagram at Dr. Dr. Risa, R-I-S-A, Riger, R-Y-G-E-R, D-R dot R-I-S-A, R-Y-G-E-R, on Instagram. I drop information there, and that's free to you. Do you that's think wonderful. Thank that you. is excellent? And thank you for that. Do you think that in-person uh, therapy, face-to-face, is superior to virtual therapy? Getting therapy is the most important piece. And how you do it is, you know, it's a different paradigm now. And so we have to go with what is the reality. Getting it is what counts. Thank you so much, Dr. Risa Riger. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico.